This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Following the death of F. Scott Fitzgerald, there was found among this writer's private papers a list of themes which he had meant to work up into short stories. One of these themes read this way, Suggestion for a story. A widely separated family inherits a house in which they all have to live together. (laughs) The more we think about this, the more intriguing that becomes. Just think of it. A widely separated family inheriting a house in which they all have to live together. If Fitzgerald had lived to write that short story, I imagine it would certainly have made quite an interesting reading. In some widely separated families, it could end in catastrophe or even murder. There was a veterinarian who once was asked to cut off a dog's tail, but the vet said, I believe I just cut that dog's tail off about a month ago. It's not quite an inch long now, he said to the owner. Oh, I know that, I know that, answered the man. But he said to the veterinarian, but I want you to cut that dog's tail, all of it, cut it all off. The veterinarian said, why? The man said, well, my mother-in-law's coming for a visit, and I don't want even a sign of welcome here for her when she gets here. <laughs> a widely separated family. Dr. J. Winston Pierce suggests that this idea of a widely separated family inheriting a house in which they all have to live together is not new, not original with the writer Fitzgerald. Actually, God thought of this first. Mankind inherited a house from God. That's this world. And God said, in effect, okay, here is your inheritance. It's a big house. The requirement is that you live in it together in peace and harmony in love and brotherhood, and kindness and helpfulness. And so God has put us together in this big house called earth. And so many of us have tried not living together. But since that's not God's way, it really doesn't work, does it? We are a family. Whether we like to admit it or not, all of us have been placed here on this earth are a family. God made this plain to us in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, when he asks the question of Cain, Cain, where's your brother? And when Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? God implied, oh yes, he definitely was. And although we are a family, we have too long failed to live like a family should live. It's later than we think. Oh, how patient God must be in allowing us to continue on in our sinful way, failing to live as family members should live. Scientists tell us that we could easily have a war where the first casualty would be the last. They're quite frankly afraid. They say they're scared. And those who are frightened most are those who know most surely the actual situation we may be in with this old earth. These people are telling us that we must learn to live together or else we'll all die together. Well, that's sort of bad talk, isn't it? Sort of gruesome. 
but so much for this talk in general terms. Let's, let's talk today about this business of living together. And while it does have the application on the broad scale of human existence, what about each of us in our personal lives? Does it really make that much difference? Can just a few of us sway the course of this world? Or will whatever we do be just like another quart of water going over Niagara Falls? I want us to consider two facts about this business of living together, which if we really take to heart, could change the course of the life for each of us here today. The first is this. God is still in control of this world. Now, I know some of you may be thinking and saying to yourself right now, well, isn't that just a general truth that we all accept? We know God's in control of the world. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. Uh, how does that fit in with our trouble of getting along with each other? Well, it's just this. Whether or not we want to admit it, the truth of the situation is that when we have trouble getting along with others, some of the blame must lie within ourselves. If you're having trouble living with someone else, some of the blame is yours. Now, if this is the case, then it is God's will that you rid your life of your part of the blame. And this must come whether or not that other person does anything about his or her life or not. God does not say uh, there are things wrong in your life, but let's wait until I get somebody else straightened out before I deal with you. No. It is God's will that you get your life right regardless. Are you willing to do that? If you're not, then you must realize that you're standing straight up in God's face and defying Him. Now here's God, and here you are, and you're at odds. Which one's going to win? <laughs> From Bible teaching, we know that no person can overcome God. Amos described that situation, that condition of a man running from God's will. This is Amos 5, verse 19. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into a house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. James Weldon Johnson said it another way in talking about the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He said, young man, your arm's too short to box with God. My dear friends, when we come to the realization that in spite of what someone else does or does not do, God is going to do the right thing in each case. And I think we're going to be able to get along better. I firmly believe that much of our trouble now is the fact that too many of us feel that we are self-appointed guardians of each other's actions. That's just not the way God has arranged things. You do that which is right regardless of the actions of someone else. I have a preacher friend who said that there was a moment of great freedom came to him in his life when he made a, a, an acknowledgement of the situation. He said, I have decided I'm going to resign as the general manager of the universe. It was a time of freedom for him, he said. A second fact about this living together situation, beware of small things. And I say this not to say that small things are dangerous, 
but rather to say, be aware of the small matters of life. It has truly been said, little things mean a lot. And it is likewise just as true that oftentimes it's the little things that contribute to our downfall. We think about anger, for example. We're all prone to get angry at times. One person said a man is just as big as the thing that makes him angry. It can be sinful. It can be destructive. And yet we say sometimes, well, I just get angry a little bit. No, that's, that's uh, not the way to look at it. Inconsideration is another thing. Thinking before you speak. Uh, just how is what I'm about to say going to be accepted by that other person? Too often people have been needlessly hurt by some well-intentioned person who operated on the philosophy that the truth never hurt anyone. Well, that's just not true. Sometimes the truth can be very damaging, particularly if the person is working, trying to overcome some evil in their life. In the book of Romans, chapter 14, uh, I want to read just a few verses there. Uh, There's some great words of instruction for us. I'm reading from the message, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson. Romans 14. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't, don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Cultivate your own relationship with God, but don't impose it on others. You're fortunate if your behavior and your belief are coherent. But if you're not sure, if you notice that you're acting in ways inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinions on others, other days just trying to please them, then you know you're out of line. If the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. Another matter, selfishness. And by this, mean, by, by this I mean not only the desire to gain material things, as when a child pulls toys to himself, that's very selfish. But selfishness also means thinking too much about one's self. I have a fellow uh, pastor, a friend named Clay Smith. I want to share with you an article that he wrote. I think maybe if I could put it into his words, it'd be more meaningful. Clay Smith said, typical family outing. I'm in the driver's seat. Mom's in the other front seat. Children sprinkled throughout the van. We're headed home. Sarah, our daughter, the lover of ice cream, asks for us to stop and get some. We've been recently convinced that she does not need to get her way all the time. So in the name of love and discipline, her future well-being, our need to get home, and Dad's waistline, we say, no, no ice cream. Sarah is a bright child. She shifts her tactics. She says, please. She begs. And she asks for just a little bit, but we're holding firm. She launches a frontal assault of tears but we remain resolute. No, we're not going to stop for ice cream. I know what she's thinking. I have the meanest parents ever, she's probably thinking. Brother and sister in the van with her are following the unfolding events 
to see if any of her basic tactics work. Well, when the tears fail, she shifts gears. The sobs subside, and there's quiet. We're almost home. Good. But then she drops the bombshell. She says, God doesn't like it when you're mean to me. <laughs> well, that changes everything. If God's on Sarah's side, then we must. Uh, we're compelled to turn around and buy gallons of ice cream. All, at all costs, we must satisfy Sarah so God will like us. Actually, I gripped the steering wheel tighter, choking back the laughter. My wife Gina has her hand over her mouth. Sarah's brother and sister are less restrained. Their laughter is uncontrollable. My little daughter at three and a half years of age has actually learned some good theology. She's learned that God is the ultimate power and in a tight spot you turn to him. She has learned that God doesn't like it when people are mean to other people. Didn't Jesus say the most important things in life are loving God and loving your neighbor? Yeah, but still there are holes in her belief system. Clay Smith concludes saying, like many of us, my little daughter assumes that God is automatically on her side. She feels free to invoke God's name and tape it to whatever her agenda is. Maybe this is normal because she's only three and a half years old. Life is pretty self-centered at that stage. But we live our lives at a breakneck speed never pausing to ask God's course, His direction, or His agenda. Instead, we tape God's name onto the things we're doing, and we get mad when God doesn't bless us. I wonder how God feels when His name is used to bless that which He never approved, never blessed, never valued. Maybe we all need to grow up a little bit, said Clay Smith. One of the show places in London in the pre-war days was a city road chapel, a little church building, which served as the headquarters for John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, some of you know. When city road chapel was being erected, the main supporting timbers were presented out of the royal stores. The great beams which carried the ceiling were made from the masts of a great sailing vessel. This kindly cooperation came from King George III, who was well acquainted with John Wesley, whom he held in very high respect. Sometime later, the caretaker of that building was dusting the pews one morning and getting the church ready for the service for the next day. The man noticed some white dust on one of the pews, but he didn't think much about it. The following day, the dust appeared again at the same spot. But when he noticed that dust there the third time, he began to investigate in earnest. After some weeks, it was discovered that there were termites in that great beam overhead. Looking up at the massive beams from below, no one would have ever guessed that they were not perfectly sound, but they were little more than hollow shelves. And the caretaker said reverently, only the grace of God saved us from a terrible accident. Yes, when we come back to thinking about this matter of living in the same place, having to live in the same house together, this house called earth, 
we know that we have growing room. We have a way to go yet. In Romans 12, 5, the author says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. So our challenge for today is to do what God leads us to do individually so that even though we have those people who irritate us, those people we have trouble getting along with, maybe some of the problem is with us and our attitude, and only God can reveal this to us. So will you join me right now in a brief prayer that God may do just that. Heavenly Father, we know that we all have room to grow spiritually. And we feel that we're on your side many times, but in all honesty, Lord, sometimes we must confess that we want you to rubber stamp what we do, our own plans. Help us, Father, to be open to what you're saying to us so that we can come to be one body in Christ as you want us to be. This we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.